forward to today. You guys look good in your blue and red shirts. And if, those, if some of you didn't get one, if you're going to serve, you'll get your own T-shirt and you'll be a part of this crew today. But um, I wanted to focus this morning's message on what we're doing today. So it cements the value that we are representing as we go out and serve today for the rest of the day. I also wanted to, to tell you uh, one thing that's coming up this fall. Um, in the 30 years that I've been pastor here, I've had one sabbatical, and I'm going to take a second one. So I'm going to be gone for six weeks this fall. Yeah. So I'm going to be gone for six weeks from uh, Monday, September 23rd through the 3rd of November, and the rest of our team is going to fill in. Todd's going to take two of those weeks, and uh, Danny Kroos is going to be here for a week. Uh, we're tapping into the Guy Wire team. Scott Chapman is really getting ready. I'm excited about that. Uh, he's going to take one Sunday, and Rich Peck and Pastor Christy Peck are also going to take uh, a week in that. So we're going to develop our team a little bit, and I trust that you guys will support them the way that you support me every, every week. But I'm looking forward to getting a a rare mental break where I, I get away from the routines and the rhythms for a short period of time and do some traveling and uh, looking forward to just uh, having a different pace for a little while. This morning our topic is becoming a mature body. Uh, the, it's part of the theme that's developed here in the verses that Christy read from Ephesians chapter 4. I don't know about you, but I love being around babies. If you ever notice a little baby boy, baby boys have this magnetic draw to every pile of dirt. So mom gets the little baby boy all cleaned up and, and ready to go at the day. And no matter how hard she tries and how clean he starts out the day, that boy will no doubt find the nearest dirt pile. Ever seen that happen? I see some of your moms going absolutely surely saying, yeah, I know that boy. And... And part of that, it's kind of interesting to watch what happens. Some of them like to play in the dirt. Some of them will eat the dirt. Some of them want to roll in the dirt. Some of them rub the dirt all over them just to see what it looks like when they change their complexion a little bit. <laughs> dirt is a toy to a baby, especially a baby boy. But if you see a 21-year-old man playing in the dirt, rubbing himself with the dirt, or trying to eat the dirt, you know that something is off, right? Something is wrong there. The only difference between the two is time. By 21, the, that man ought to know that dirt is not a toy, dirt, dirt is not a food. Tony Evans, pastor that some of you listen to on the radio, uh, makes the point in telling the story of a baby boy playing in the dirt. And then he comes on the heels of that and he says, we have too many Christians in our day today who've been saved for too long and are still playing in the dirt. Something's wrong. If we're listening to the word, if we're in church every week, but we don't realize that the dirt is not where we're supposed to be. When the Apostle Paul wrote his well-known letter to the Ephesian church, he was writing to a group of people he knew well. He knew their strengths, he knew their weaknesses. He loved this church. He actually spent more time with this particular church than with any other of the churches that he ministered in. Spent two years with the Ephesian church. His connection with them was so tight that Acts 20 says that on the day when he parted, that the elders and Paul himself were in tears because there was such great sorrow because the bond was so deep. So it must have grabbed their attention when Paul wrote to them years later 
that he wanted them to no longer be infants, but instead wanted them to grow to become, in every respect, a mature body. Paul's overarching desire, that as he wrote in the passage that we're looking at this morning, was for this congregation to become a fully mature congregation, a fully mature church. A church like North River is marked by continual change. Some members of this church family have been only attending for a few months and very quickly you become absorbed into what we're doing here, while others have been here as long as 30 years. Yet we are still one body, one fellowship, one church. And if the Apostle Paul was writing to us today, I believe that he would want all signs of infancy to be left behind as we are becoming closer and closer toward that goal of becoming a more mature church. Here's the problem. It can never be perfectly so. Because we always have people who are at the beginning end of the, the journey of faith, and we other, have other people who are farther down the road. So we will, there will never be a time, there should never be a time, when we are all at the point of spiritual maturity. But as a congregation, we should be moving gradually toward that goal, where we know more, we understand more, we depend on him more, where his principles become enfolded into the way that we live more and that the lives that we live live up to our values. So I have a question. How do we become a mature church in every possible respect? That's part of the question that was behind this section that we're going to dive into for a few minutes here today. Here's the big idea. I want to give you this right up front. Well-taught churches are equipped to learn together serve together, and grow together. That's easy to, to, to hang on to. Well-equipped churches, or well-taught churches, are equipped to learn together, to serve together, and to grow together. I'd like to present for a few minutes a recipe for becoming a mature church that uh, rings out from generation to generation. It's one of those time-tested thoughts that uh, continually we need to be reminded of. Three aspects of uh, this process that uh, come clear as Paul writes these six verses from verse 11 to 16, Ephesians chapter 4. The first has to do with the means. And the means of becoming a mature church has to do with Christ-centered teaching. So Paul starts off this paragraph saying, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, verse 7, which we did not read, actually sets the context for this discussion of spiritual maturity. Paul introduces us to the concept of what he calls grace gifts, the grace gifts of Christ. That verse says, but to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, he's not talking about saving grace. He's not talking about uh, the grace that fills us and that covers over our sin. We all get the same amount of that. We get all that we need, all that we could possibly need in order to be united to God's family. He's talking about grace gifts, meaning there are certain spiritual gifts that God gives to each person, and some of that becomes obvious from the moment you first put your faith in Christ. Some of them become more evident the longer you serve. But each and every one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ has at least one, if not more, 
of what the Bible calls spiritual gifts. And Jesus is the one, says Paul, who apportions those gifts. In doing so, Paul borrows a picture that is painted of the Lord in Psalm chapter 68. In Psalm 68, we see a picture of the Lord there as the conquering king after rescuing the people of Israel and bringing them through the Exodus period. As the conquering king, he went through the land and into the hills gathering gifts from the people who had previously lived there. Of course, this is a poetic demonstration. It's not like the, the Lord himself walked up into the hills in those days. And then these gifts were used to establish the kingdom of Israel. Here, the Apostle Paul borrows that poetic language from Psalm 68, but he tweaks it a bit to talk about Jesus, who reigns as the conquering king after his resurrection and after his ascension into the heavens. And so he pictures Jesus as coming as the conquering king into the land and up into the hills, but this time, instead of receiving gifts, he is imparting gifts to his people. And so there's almost like a mirror image between Psalm 68 and what's happening here in Ephesians chapter 4. The purpose of these gifts is for the building of his kingdom and to equip his people to be able to have everything that they need to follow through on the, the tasks and the responsibilities he gives us. Then Paul mentions five of these gifts that are often called the ascension gifts. He speaks of the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Now, this is not a complete gift of the spiritual gifts. In fact, there are four other lists that are given in the New Testament, and none of them are identical, meaning he never set out in one setting to completely exhaust all of the spiritual gifts. But for different reasons, he mentions different ones in each of his letters. So no one of these lists is complete. And we start to realize that Paul has focused on these particular gifts for a reason. It's tied into the point that he wants to make. Many New Testament scholars hold that the first two of these gifts, the apostles and the prophets, were intended only for establishing churches in the earliest period of the development of the church and that they no longer exist today. Others would say they don't exist as offices that we continually replace, but there are people who have an apostolic gift or people who have a prophetic gift. Some people who might have an apostolic gift are those who start new movements uh, where there's something that flourishes in a place where Christianity had not existed. And they have the ability to go into a culture in the way that the Apostle Paul did and start something fresh and new where there's no people of faith in the background. Some people who are spoken of having something of a prophetic gift today, they're not telling the future, but they're speaking truth into the culture with great discernment in ways that penetrate and that allow us all of a sudden to see something we missed before. I think he was uncomfortable with it, but some people spoke of Chuck Colson that way, that when Chuck wrote in his books, he had such an understanding of, of biblical truth and theology and our culture that his words were very incisive, and that he saw places where the church, church was weak or where our theology was not consistent with our practice long before other people. Nobody is in, in doubt or in debate over the last three of this grouping of five evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Some hold that the pastors and teachers are together, and that's one office or one gift. Uh, some hold that they are two. But the evangelists tend to 
help us in Christian faith on the beginning end of the journey. They're the ones who, who spread the gospel, teach the gospel to us, and then they move on to another place, whereas pastors and teachers are charged with the responsibility of helping people to grow in their faith, sometimes for long periods of time. A few notes about these roles are in order. All of these leaders that are mentioned here have responded in some way to a calling from the Lord. That means that they are not self-appointed. The rule of thumb looks something like this. The Lord calls, leaders respond, but churches need to affirm that sense of calling. So if a person has a desire to be a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist, that's a really good thing and we should celebrate that. But the local church needs to affirm that gifting to, to find out whether that person really is called or delusional. Or we could end up with people who, uh, in a delusionary way, think that they've heard from God when they really haven't. Does that make sense to you? There's an important role. So I remember when I was much, much younger, uh, had this sense of internal calling that wouldn't go away, I would rather have done something else, to be honest with you. I was scared to death of the thought that maybe I was supposed to be a pastor. I was thinking I'd be a football coach or a sportscaster or something really safe like that. <laughs> God had other ideas, and he kept opening doors for me. But eventually, the, one of the tests for that became when the church that I grew up in said, you know what, we think that we see the hand of God in you, and before you go off somewhere else, we would like to ordain you to ministry. And for me, that was very, very important to be ordained in, in the home congregation where I had grown up because those people knew me from the time I was a little boy. They, they knew all the trouble that I got into and they saw the way that God brought change over time into my life. And they were the ones who first affirmed that sense of calling and that sense of, of gifting. But the ultimate test for all of them in an ongoing way is how clearly they adhere to the gospel of Christ without distorting the clear central truths of God's word. Churches grow under consistent teaching of God's word as truth for all times, and churches die under distortion of God's word when people shape it in order to simply say what people in our time or in our cultures want to hear or what makes them feel good. Sometimes the truth corrects and reorients and doesn't feel good at first because it brings change. Does that make sense to you? The job description of gifted church leaders is given in this passage. Very simply, it is this, to prepare God's people for works of service. Let me say that again. The job description of every pastor who is on our staff isn't to do all the ministry isn't to be in charge, is not to be in charge of all the ministry. It is to prepare God's people for works of service. Theology is important. Bible knowledge is important. But just having good theology is never the goal. The goal is that we will apply our knowledge and use our gifts and talents to serve God and other people, and in doing so, to accomplish the work of His kingdom. Participating in works of service, therefore, is essential for spiritual growth to maturity. So what that means is what we are doing today is intended to be a catalyst toward that goal. And God looks down on all this and says, okay, you're getting the teaching and worshiping part first, but then we're going out and we're setting the tone, not to say this is our one act of service for the year, but we're setting the tone for what we hope will happen naturally 
in organized and in unorganized ways throughout the entire year because this is part of our collective calling. So the means is Christ-centered teaching that gives us the knowledge of who Christ is and that also gives us the challenges to live up to the high calling that he gives us. Here's the second part of this recipe. The goal. The goal is Christ-connected maturity. So we pick it up in verse 14. Paul says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Sue and I recently welcomed a new member to our family. He's a little dachshund who has uh, found his way into our household. And that's Copper that you see there. Copper is a 10-pound miniature dachshund. He's really cute, and he's really little, and he's really fast. He got away from us on the first day that we had him, and he was gone, lost in the woods for a week. So he's also a survivor. Yesterday, we took him for a walk in the park. And when we did so, there were several people who looked at him, and because he's so cute, they started talking about him, and they started using baby talk around our dog. And they referred to him as a puppy or a little baby. So we felt like we had to stand up for him a little bit and say, he's three and a half years old, he's not a puppy, he's not a baby, he's actually a full-grown miniature dachshund. He's as, he's as large now as he will ever be. When it comes to cute little dogs, this is a very easy mistake to make. Now, here, here's the point of telling you about my dog. Infancy is not a lifetime goal. <laughs> not for copper, not for us, certainly not for us. So Paul uses a negative picture of spiritual infancy here. He's getting beyond the cuteness of babies and beyond the baby talk and he wants us to know that people who are spiritual infants do not have a mature handle on knowledge or truth. The result is that spiritually, at the beginning, we are immature, instable, and often gullible. Christians who don't have a firm truth foundation are like spiritual infants. They are marked by spiritual instability, sometimes getting tossed back and forth by the storms of life. And sometimes they are gullible, blown around by the crafty and deceptive teaching that sometimes enters into the church world by people who feel like they can take advantage of people or they can suck them dry in terms of their misplaced loyalty and devotion or by the way that they plead for money and use it in inappropriate ways. And he wants us to be wise and to know that that's out there. It was in the first century. It is today. Don't believe everybody who claims that they're a Christian teacher or a leader or a pastor or any of the above. You know their fruit on the basis of their teaching and the way that they live it out. That's what Paul is warning us about. The implication of these verses is that Christians who are well-led and well-taught will apply God's word to their lives and will leave spiritual infancy behind. Spiritual infancy isn't bad. It's just designed for those who are at the very beginning of the journey. It's not meant to be a destination where we land. So Paul deliberately includes this contrast between infants and those who are mature. Spiritual infants are still playing in the dirt. 
And he's saying to the Ephesian church, guys, get out of the dirt. Clean up. Move forward. It's time that you understand how to feed yourself and how to stand on your own and how to realize that there are schemers who are out there. Don't buy into the false teaching, the false doctrines, the false ideas that they spread. When we stay stuck in spiritual infancy, it becomes obvious after a while that something is off. Because Christians who are becoming spiritually mature follow the leadership and instructions of Christ as the head of the church. We put his word into practice in increasing ways. It doesn't mean that we never fail, but we get back up and we keep trying and we make more progress. So the goal is Christ-led or Christ-connected spiritual maturity. This goal is one reason why we stress small group fellowships around here at North River. So in the coming weeks, as you see these things roll out and you've never been in a small group, I would really challenge you. It's time that you joined a fellowship. Here's the reason why. We very, very rarely drift towards spiritual maturity. What we end up doing naturally, left alone, we drift toward whatever is easy, whatever is simple. But when you are in a fellowship of people who are studying and learning together and sometimes challenging each other, you grow. You grow at a faster rate than you ever will alone. And so we're kind of nutty about that around here, but I'm a small group addict. I have been either leading a small group or in a small group since I was 19 years old. And every single year I've been in at least one, if not leading two. And I, I, I just can't stress this um, more powerfully or more significantly, the fall season is the time when we launch these, and it's a great time to get involved. So as part of this recipe for becoming a, small, a mature church, we've looked at the means, Christ-centered teaching, the goal, which is Christ-centered, Christ-connected growth, and then there are some marks that Paul talks about, marks of a maturing church, and it has to do with Christ-led participation. So we go back again to verse 15 and finish out the paragraph. He says, Instead, speaking truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul uses the imagery of the body and of an athlete who works out on the body and who does strength training in order to make a point about these marks of, of growth and maturity and participation. There are four marks of a maturing church that he lists here in these final two verses. The first is speaking truth in love. If we were to be quite literal about the way that that phrase is written, it actually says something like truthing in love. I, I like that. So, in other words, when, when you and I are speaking truth and we are gently, and I mean that, gently uh, speaking truth to each other in order to either have a corrective measure or to point something out that somebody didn't understand. We're not coming down from on high. It's not our judge to, uh, job to judge other people or to land on them with what we know and now they didn't know. We are truthing. We are spreading truth. It's the process of living in truth. And so Paul uses a couple of redundant forms here to say, we are truthing lovingly whenever we use the word of God in order to help somebody else. The second mark is growing to become a mature body. In other words, that we start to see truth spreading out in all kinds of different ways throughout the entire church family. 
The third mark is embracing Jesus as the head of the church, meaning we understand that we were given great freedom and that we're wired for freedom, but we're also recognizing that He is the Lord, that He is worthy of our honor, He is worthy of our, our discipleship, He is the one that we follow, and so that we place ourselves under His leadership deliberately, and that what He speaks rings with authority in our lives. And the final mark of that is fully participating in the work of God. Now, it's interesting, when we begin to grow toward maturity and when we find these four marks of a maturing church that we're able to speak truth and love, we're growing as a mature family of, of faith, we're embracing Jesus as the head of the church, and we're fully participating in the work of God, there are three pitfalls that we avoid as a church grows in its knowledge, grows in unity, and, show, and displays these four marks. We begin to avoid immaturity. We begin to avoid instability, where we are no longer tossed around by the wind of change. And we avoid gullibility. In other words, there's greater and greater discernment that we have as a family of faith that you can recognize truth from error more quickly. You can hear it. Sometimes you can sniff it out and smell it. You can see it in action, and you're not fooled by it. So it's very, very interesting that Paul was already telling the early church somewhere around 58 AD that this is going to happen, that there are people who are going to look for ways to take advantage of people whom they think are gullible because they're willing to follow a leader. What those leaders haven't counted on is the ultimate leader that we follow is Jesus and that his words are written in the Bible and that we can go back and we can look line by line, sentence by sentence, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we can evaluate a teacher's body of work according to what the word says. And when the pastor or the teacher or the evangelist or the TV preacher or whoever it is speaks words that are inconsistent with what we find in the Bible, that's when you know this is not a person that I should follow. Does that make sense to you? So one of the things that we know around here as pastors is that every single week there are people who are testing what we say and sometimes they come back with some great questions. Did I get this right? Did I hear you saying this? Because when I was reading my Bible, I love that. When I was reading my Bible, I read this. And I'm not sure if you said the same thing. And sometimes we've got to wrestle that out. Sometimes they misheard. Sometimes I misspoke. Sometimes they actually go together and the person doesn't yet, hasn't yet figured out how those two strains of thought work together. It is absolutely okay to test the pastor of your church. Do you need permission for that? No, because you have it right here, right? You don't need to. It's the mark of a strong church when we can do that lovingly, speaking truth in love. It's okay to have questions for your small group leader and say, I don't understand. There's something here that, that doesn't make sense to me. As I'm reading my Bible, that's when it gets to be fun because we start to dig for ourselves and put the pieces together. So Paul stresses two essential pathways that lead towards spiritual maturity. The first is te the teaching-based pathway, which feeds the mind, 
And the second is the participation-based pathway, which exercises the muscles and ligaments and the rest of the body. And what he's saying is that both of them are necessary for the process. Think of it this way. Suppose that you went to college and you you were going to study to be an athletic trainer. And you studied all about the body and how the different parts work and how you can strengthen each muscle. And you develop exercises that other people can do. But you never work out once in the four years that you're going to college. Do you think that somebody else would look at you and say, you have a thorough understanding, you're fully equipped to be an exercise trainer or a, or a, a physical trainer or somebody like that? No. So Paul's is saying the same thing about you and me as we develop our faith. The cerebral side, the intellectual knowledge of Scripture and theology is absolutely essential. But at some point, it becomes like taking in too many calories that you never work off if we are not exercising the participation side, which is where we use our spiritual gifts, which is where we get our hands dirty, which is where we partner together. And Paul is saying here in this passage that each part of the body with the different gifts that we have, the different talents and skills we have, is necessary to the whole. So you may be thinking this morning, you know, I've been here for a while and I, I, I come on Sundays, but I, I really don't fit here. I'm not sure that I have uh, a way to belong. I'd like to challenge you a little bit. You need to work on that. And I would dare you to approach one of us as pastors or one of our overseers or deacons or ministry leaders that you can, see, you can see and say, how do I get involved on your team? I'm watching what you do. How do I get involved? How do I get started? And there are so many people that will help you start. Part of what we've done around here is we recognize that the, the journey to Christ is filled with all kinds of fear. So we don't just jump on people the moment they walk in the door. We actually let you stay anonymous as long as you want to so that you can just begin to soak in the Word of God, that you can understand what this is all about. But the point comes when you say, I think it's time for me to get involved. I want to really feel more a part of this. And that's when we're ready to help you. A day like today, where there are many of us that are going out to serve for the rest of the day, is meant to be a catalyst in that process, where we get our, our, our feet in the water a little bit, and we get to take some introductory steps in serving together. Each part of the body is necessary. The goal is not equal skill or equal amounts of work. The goal is for each one to use their skills and their gifts for the work that they have been assigned And we grow in unity when we share the same theological convictions, but we also grow in unity together when we serve together in the community. So here's our challenge for today. Let's speak the truth in love wherever we go, wherever we serve. Let's encourage each one to use their talents, their skills, and their gifts, knowing that everyone contributes to the whole of what we are accomplishing today, and that every single person is important to the process. And I know that some of you couldn't commit to going out for the rest of the day. You had other commitments. You got to work. You got to do something else. You're not physically uh, ready to go get your hands dirty. I get that. Next week's coming. 
And there are weeks, the week, there are things to do next week and the week after and so forth. And we want you to know that you are just as necessary as everybody else who's got a colored shirt on today. Here's the idea. Well-taught churches are equipped to learn together, serve together, and grow together. And we need all three parts of that. What I would like to do is close out my part of, of uh, the service, and then we're going to call the ushers to come and have David sing the, the uh, David lead us with the final song. Uh, but I'd like to do one thing first. If you could turn to the back page of your notes, there's a slogan that we talked about last week from the passage in chapter three of this same letter, the Ephesians letter, that formed the core of this. And I boiled that down to one phrase immeasurably more through all generations. I wonder if you would just say that out loud with me. Let's do that together. Immeasurably more throughout all generations. I think it fits what we're doing today. As we go out to serve, we are asking that God will do immeasurably more than anybody thought or imagined would happen on this day, just as we're hoping that for the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Let me pray, and then we're going to invite the ushers to come, and uh, we'll have our final song, and then I'm going to invite Paul Short up here to give us our marching instructions for the day. Father God, thank you for this wonderful group of people who are known as North River Church. And I ask that you will bless our efforts today and that, Lord, you will look down on us and, and understand that we are trying to bring two halves of this whole together. We are trying to take our biblical and theological understanding that we've been working on here this morning and match that with the way that our hearts respond to needs in our community. And I ask that you will bless our every effort and that you will do immeasurably more than we could possibly ask or imagine in terms of the work that we get done, in terms of the heart that goes out and the conversations that begin. I pray that you will lead us in building friendships today, that you will lead us in, in taking first steps into ministry today, that you will give us joy in the midst of, in some cases, doing hard work, and that when we gather together at the end of the day, there will be great joy and great celebration. And we ask that you would be in the midst of the celebration. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.